tail hatch your net worth with magic internet money. This is Brad Mills, and today's episode of Magic Internet Money is fake sponsored by the Lightning Network. I turned down actual sponsors so I can continue to call out malarkey as I see it. But if you'd like to sponsor the show, how about you just leave me a review instead? This conversation is with Alex Bosworth from one of my favorite Bitcoin companies, Lightning Labs. When I got into Bitcoin in 2011, there were two competing narratives, low fee payments and decentralized store value. Since I think Bitcoin still provides the average person with a life-changing generational investment potential, I tend to focus on the conversations about Bitcoin as an investment, which is the digital gold topic. But it's still just as important to me now as it was in 2011 that every person, no matter how much they're worth or where they live, can access the Bitcoin network to send transactions that are relatively cheap and censorship resistant. So that's why it was really glad to be able to have this conversation with Alex about the Lightning Network. It's one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the podcast so far. So if you've liked it as much as I did, please consider sharing it. Brad Mills is a partner at X Squared Ventures. All opinions expressed by Brad and his guests do not reflect the opinions of X Squared Ventures or X Squared Management. Investing in cryptocurrencies is high risk and you can get wrecked. Do not treat any opinion expressed on this show as investment advice, but only as an expression of Brad's opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Do not attempt to hodl without doing your research first. My guest today is Alex Bosworth. From Lightning Labs. Hi, great to be here. Great to talk to you. That's right, a proper pronunciation, right? Yeah, Alex Bosworth, Lightning Labs. Have you had anybody pronounce it wrong? No, I don't think so. White privilege, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, (laughs) my name was actually changed like at Ellis Island. So that name is, I can't even pronounce, like uh, my great grandfather or something. What's Ellis Island? Like, uh, you know, when they emigrated to the US. You know, they said, oh, your name's too hard to pronounce. So we're changing it. Right. Yeah. There's a bunch of propaganda commercials in Canada when I was growing up about uh, the Irish people that lost their names when they immigrated to Canada. And they just like gave you a new name when you arrived. Yeah. So really, my name should be some Russian name, but now it's Bosworth. Nice English name. (laughs) Your ancestry is from Russia, but are you like go back off and you have family there? Oh, no, it's, you know, it's ways ways back and actually right. i also have english ancestry so bosworth kind of fits too nice so you grew up in the states yeah yeah um i'm from san francisco originally i've lived in um seattle and chicago and uh beijing for a while and new york oh how long ago were you living in beijing i lived there from around 2007 to 2016 wow okay quite a while yeah quite a while what made you decide to leave beijing and come back to the states it was really a forcing function of um, the green card process. So my wife I applied for her green card. And, you know, the government says if you don't use green card, then you lose a green card. But it also takes years to just even get the application done. You know, I always thought also I wanted to work on Bitcoin, but I didn't want to do it while I was living in China. So those factors kind of came together. So what were you doing for a career in China before you got into Bitcoin? Well, I was still into Bitcoin, but as an enthusiast in China, and I was working on um, iPhone applications and um, kind of like a cross-platform set of productivity applications. I got the first iPhone and I was like, this is a, you know, 
world-changing device. I need to make apps for smartphones and stuff. And so I made a, a bunch of these apps at a company that I co-founded with my friend. And uh, that's what we worked on. Uh, we built out that company to you know, like indie developers. And it was productivity apps. Yeah. It started with this app called Do It Tomorrow. And the concept of the app is it only has one button, and that's to push the task off until tomorrow. I would be pushing that all day long. Yeah, it was popular. And so that kind of like gave us the thought that we should make more like casual apps, like productivity apps, but that were made for like a smaller form factor, not just like in design, but also in concept. So I also worked on another app called Memo Notepad. And that's kind of like a note taking app. And we worked on a calendaring app as well. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a really good space to be in back in those days when it was first getting started. Lots of eyeballs. I was in the app space as well early, not iPhone apps early. I was in the Facebook game business kind of early, like right when they opened up the API. And I remember just lots of little niche apps just going viral all the time and people having life-changing results from uh, the ad money that would come in from their app that went viral. And it was all it was, it was like, you know, bite your friend and they become a zombie. And then 10 million people become using this. <laughs> it was really fun, like in the start of the App Store, like we were featured by Apple and stuff, and you would see a flood of users. I think things have kind of changed since then. But the other part that was fun is that we could live in Beijing. The team of people working with us, they were all expats. So they were all, you know, like me, you know, a foreigner in China. And it didn't really matter that we were living, you know, outside of the US. We could just build apps and have fun. Yeah, that kind of spawned the whole digital nomad lifestyle. I mean, it was a thing before with internet marketing and, you know, entrepreneur working from the internet, you could be anywhere. But apps, I think, really made it more mainstream. Yeah. Because so many people could just easily make apps back then and have a life, a living. Now it's more like uh, video game streaming and stuff like that, YouTube. But even that's kind of getting... I don't know, like all the easy opportunities are getting squeezed away from all these industries as the as it consolidates and more regulated. People abused it as well. So like the App Store, people were going crazy on the App Store with fake reviews and stuff. So I think it was just too difficult for Apple to handle it. But I think like also the remote work concept is, you know, still growing. So do you find that there's been any parallels with your experience of being an independent app developer and then now working on the UX, UI, sort of like user-focused side of Bitcoin, where it's like you got to think about how a user is going to interact with the Lightning Network, kind of like you would have to think about how the regular average user is going to interact with an app that you're going to put on on, uh, the App Store. That's something I really thought about a lot when I was still working at BitGo. When I came back from China, I went to the Chaincode residency, and then from there, I went to work at BitGo. I was like, how are we going to work with Lightning? You know, how is this even going to be put in front of users? So I made a couple apps to kind of like experiment around with figuring that out. So one is called htlc.me, which is like a custodial wallet. That's just a very easy web wallet to do lightning payments and receive lightning payments. And I thought, oh, you know, how can we make this like user experience better? And then I was also working on another project where, and this is kind of before there even was stores for lightning. And like, I thought, oh, well, how is the store going to be there? How is a lightning app going to work? So I made this app, the app called Yalls.org. Oh, you made Yalls? Okay. Yeah. Did you originally make that as like a, sort of an activism thing against yours? Actually, I didn't name Yalls.org. That was uh, Lalu. When the split was happening, right, and all these uh, big blocker guys started to go over to the BCH side and bring their stuff over and start saying things like Craig Wright is Satoshi. I mean, I felt 
really good about y'alls.org because it's like, finally, we got something that's not run by some lunatic that's like saying that there's an alien created Bitcoin or something weird like that, which is like Ryan X. Charles. He just went off the deep end when the split happened. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of crazy stuff happening. And y'alls.org is just something that I even made in a weekend originally, just to play around with what it would be like. And it works on Lightning? Is that how is that how it works? Yeah, it's Lightning only. It's just something that I think is nice for testing. So I was originally working on a, like a wallet as well. So I was working on a wallet application. And I thought, oh, I'm going to need a way to test out like what the experience of the user is going to be because you can't buy anything with Lightning. So we need something to buy in order to make a nice wallet. So that's a, a big part of why I made Yelp.org. Okay, so you were in China, you were doing iPhone apps and stuff like that productivity-wise. You had the experience of like thinking about how users are going to interact with this app. And then you wanted to come to the US and you were working on your own side apps with Lightning as you were at with BitGo. And then that transitioned into working with Lightning Lab somehow, I guess? Well, at BitGo, actually, I was working on Lightning as well. Okay. So BitGo is you know, the API provider for lots of exchanges. So they provide like the backends, the chain interfaces for all of these different exchanges, like Bitstamp, it used to be Bitfinex, Kraken. And what they were thinking about is, we know that our customers are paying a lot in on-chain fees, and they're struggling with this on-chain transaction times, that kind of thing. What are ways that we can kind of alleviate that pressure for them and make it rewarding to be on the BitGo platform? So at BitGo, I worked on another project, actually, which was a private blockchain. Once that project was completed and pushed out production, then we were looking for kind of a new project, and that was to build a Lightning interface at BitGo or to just explore like what it would mean for exchanges to get onto Lightning. Was that early mid-2018? I guess it was like at the end of 2017. Oh, before it even went live. Yeah. Actually, Yals.org was even, you know, one of the first like on mainnet applications. I really started with testnet. You were building on the testnet then. That's cool. Yeah. So a real lightning pioneer. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's really felt historic because I was like trying these very, you know, rough beta builds of LND and patching in mainnet even when only testnet was supported. You know, it's a lot of fun. The show is more for like non-technical people. I'm not a real technical guy. I say I was building Facebook apps. Like I had the ideas. I was the idea guy. And I was like hiring developers and buying apps and, you know, getting people to kind of implement my ideas. I mean, I kind of understand it from a technical level a little bit, but once you get into the weeds, I get real confused. I've been a real big believer and supporter of Lightning Network since, you know, 2015 or 16 or whatever, when when it was announced, it's like, this is potentially how we're going to scale Bitcoin. But I've been struggling with it because it's really hard for me to use right now. And I'm one of those guys that got into Bitcoin in 2011. And I was brought in that uh, libertarian tsunami of, of people who were like, screw the banks. <laughs> we need cheap, you know, PayPal charges us too much. We need cheap transactions. So during the split, I was really struggling with the fees because the fees were extremely high. But yet I'm one of the ones that stayed on the Bitcoin side because I believed above all else, sovereignty is the most important. Decentralization is the most important. And I see the argument for not needing to put all the small, minuscule, non-impactful transactions on the chain to bloat the chain and make everybody else's full node have to validate all those minuscule, meaningless transactions. But also, I think we do need the ability for people to by small minuscule transactions and using Bitcoin. And that's what's going to hopefully make it usable for the average person. So what I've been struggling with is 
it's hard to use even still after a couple of years. It's getting better, but I was really disappointed that Casa decided to like sunset the node because I was on Casa's, I guess, on the node and using the Sats app and stuff, and it was really cool. So, what do you think for the average person? What do you think they could be doing right now to kind of get prepared to use Lightning, or or should they just not? Should should we just wait? Like, what's the state of Lightning? in terms of like the moment when it's like an iPad app it's, or an iPhone app, it's going to be easy to use and people don't need to like run a full node and run a watchtower and do all that. Yeah. I mean, I actually think the key to all of that is not anything to do with the technology, but more to do with the revenue model. It makes so much sense for Apple to make things great to use and easy to use because they have a blockbuster product. So they can hire, you know, the best people. They can spend millions of dollars to make that, you know, make those marketing blitzes, make the packaging amazing. Whereas the people who are making the apps, like these people are doing it as a labor of love for the most part. And making apps, like I know myself from making apps, it's not easy. It takes a big team. It takes a lot to make something look very simple. And that's even if you're in a trusted model. Once you go to untrusted, where everything has to be super open source and you have to validate everything, it just makes your work like 10 times harder. Like if I were a new user, like a retail user or like a you know somebody who just wanted to play around with it. The app that I really like is called Strike. That's Jack Maller's company and he made, you know, the Zap wallet. And the Zap wallet was pretty good, but I think Strike really nails the simplicity of making lightning payments. And it also plays well with like the regulatory environment of the US, which is unfriendly to making lightning payments. Like the problem with making any kind of Bitcoin payment in the US is that you owe capital gains on the difference between when you bought the Bitcoin and when you spent the Bitcoin. Even if you're not thinking that you're selling it, you still have this capital gains worry. But with Strike, they do the lightning payment on your behalf. That means that you're exempt from the capital gains, but you still have the benefit of making those lightning payments. Oh, really? Yeah. So is it custodial or is it non-custodial? Well, because you don't even own Bitcoin in this app, they send Bitcoin on your behalf. So I'm not sure I would call it custodial Bitcoin wallet. It's more like an interface between your bank and other people's Lightning wallets. So you want to buy like a Lightning Labs mug or something like that. You go onto a store and then you actually pay with dollars from your connected bank account, but it actually uses Lightning Network to send the payment. Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much. But do you have a balance? Like, can you have a balance? You have a dollar balance. So it it works like kind of like Square Cash where you load up like $100 or $20 or something. And then that lets you make those payments from there. And you can send it back to your bank account. And in the future, they will also allow you to receive in the same way. So can you own Bitcoin on the app as a balance or do you not? No, no, it doesn't even allow you. So it's not a custodial Bitcoin wallet. It's like an interface to your bank and it's a regulated system. So and just like all bank things, you need to do like some KYC kind of stuff. Right. So I remember there was some cool news about him with that app that he somehow convinced the banks to exempt him from the KYC rules because they already had done the KYC through the bank. So he didn't need to bother doing KYC with the app, right? I think it has more limited KYC implications because it only really deals with fiat. You don't have any like new thing that's weird and you have to kind of like hedge your bets on. It's just fiat. Okay, so that's an interesting way for the average person to just buy things with Bitcoin. But I'm like wanting people to think in terms of Bitcoin. So to me, that's just like a, a niche, like a gimmicky sort of product. Like it's really cool, but it's not Bitcoin. It is, but it isn't. Yeah, it's not owning Bitcoin. But Zap is, right? Like his other app, Zap? That's true. Zap is. But 
Yeah, because of this regulatory problem. Yeah. Owning Bitcoin is a better experience for Americans to just buy it and hold it. And Lightning is very transactional. You want to like be moving it all around. Right. I mean, it really is two problems. Then there's the technical problem and then the regulatory problem. But there's also that regulatory problem where you owe capital gains tax when you do anything with foreign currencies or like people drive for Uber or do uh, the work economy or whatever. Yeah, the gig economy. The gig economy. Yeah. Like there's a huge amount of people that don't even realize, oh, I'm supposed to pay taxes on this Uber or on this Uber Eats delivery. Like they just don't realize it, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with this capital gains thing. And it's not the case in every country. Oh, doesn't Portugal just recently say that there's like no capital gains on Bitcoin? I'm not sure. I know Germany has pretty nice rules about it, but I'm not building that app. That's, you know, Jag is working on that. And that's something that he said was a concern to people. I don't think it's, you know, a total blocker. But as far as getting like regular people into Bitcoin, I think the path for that is like getting you to Bitcoin's like unique properties. That's another thing I've heard from Jack is that the people who appreciate the Bitcoin holding as far as transactions go are people who appreciate the privacy benefits of Lightning, the privacy benefits of Bitcoin. I mean, that's a drawback of using that strike app is that you are kind of revealing your your monetary patterns to whoever can see your bank account stuff, right. including Stripe. That's a more limited market. Like we've been kind of conditioned to accept that we just don't have any privacy. There's some market there, though, of people who, you know, have kind of figured it out like, oh, I should probably not let anybody see everything I'm doing or there's a certain set of purchases that I don't want people to know about. So in that case, I think, you know, the non-custodial wallets that I would say are doing well are maybe Breeze and Phoenix. Do you have to connect a node to those? So they use a more trusting model that is kind of like a compromise. So you don't need a full node or anything, but you do take on the risk that there will be, you know, some kind of like an attack on your holding. So I wouldn't recommend it for holding your stash. It is still like oriented towards spending. So like we're so early right now in Bitcoin itself, but it seems like we're we're back in like 2012 or, or 13 when it comes to lightning, even though so much is being done. It does feel so early. What do you think about that? I really think it comes back to revenue models. So if you don't have a way to pay your developers, I mean, developers got to eat. If you don't have a a way figured out so that you can have a win-win as far as revenue goes, then I don't think we'll see like great software, you know, great products being released for for people to really get into it without being, you know, giving some efforts on their end. But I do think like revenue is coming. It's just we have to kind of figure out the market. It's kind of similar to the Apple situation again, in a way, back in like 2000, whatever, 15 or something at the App Store. I remember Apple didn't care about the developers. Like you could barely even get in touch with Apple. And most of Apple's revenue stream was coming from their main product, which was phones selling products. So Apple just didn't give a shit about the developers. So there was even talk of like developers trying to form a union and stuff and try to like lobby Apple to reduce the 30% cut and stuff. But it's kind of similar developing on Bitcoin, like Apple didn't care and Bitcoin doesn't care either (laughs) about the developers because Bitcoin is not, you know, cannot be lobbied or or whatever. You're right. It kind of does come down to profits. You know, there's nobody that's going to bail out a Bitcoin developer from the network, you know, in terms of profits, the way I've always thought about it was I I didn't think about it from profits. I, I thought about it from like an activist perspective where I would want to provide liquidity on the Lightning Network just to be part of it and just to help people make payments and make it decentralized. And 
in the same way that in the early Bitcoin days, I was just giving away Bitcoin and the network had zero fees, basically just kind of sparked the network because the more people that use it, the better it is. Like the more Bitcoin that's in people's hands, the more favorable the tax code's going to get towards Bitcoin and, and et cetera, all that stuff. And when you think about it from the terms of profit, which really you do need profit to run a company that's building something on Lightning. You can either raise money or you can try to make a profit model. So what's the profit side of Lightning? How do you make profit with Lightning? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if anybody's you know making bank on Lightning right yet. I'd say that step one is make Lightning have higher volume because there's no way that we can make profits if the total volume of the network is not large already. Exactly. Assuming that we are successful, we find use cases that justify the volume increase and that Bitcoin itself is a potential reservoir of demand. Like as the mempool fills up, the fees create a, an impetus for people to look for other ways to send around Bitcoin without trusting people. I think that the volume grows. I would say it's going to come from areas that we maybe didn't expect. I think that the profits and the revenue can come from things that are unique to Bitcoin. And I think that's how the existing Bitcoin market has evolved. I mean, if you look at the market right now, of course, the, like the price tank, right? It just tanked yesterday. The thing that was interesting to me, though, is that in that day, I think I saw the most volume ever, like the most coins were exchanged. And who's making money on that? That's the exchanges, BitMEX. Even the miners are making money because the fees are going up. So I think that that's the kind of model that's more sustainable, which is that we have this new kind of concepts like BitMEX has this idea that you can trade all these other assets, but actually it's still settled in Bitcoin. They don't have any other assets. It's just that you're trading kind of like against the, the Oracle of the price feed of these different assets. And I think that's like the kind of like weird concept that could drive revenue in the medium term. So for companies that are for building on Lightning, you could see like exchanges and speculation and stuff like that happening on second layers. Is that what you mean? I mean, that's just my personal opinion. But like, I think that's the easy target. People who are already kind of figuring out cool stuff to do with Bitcoin and making money right now, because these are big companies, right? BitMEX and Coinbase and Binance, they have hundreds of employees. And they figured out a way to say, okay, we have these markets here. We have the Bitcoin market. How do we offer a service to people that they're going to pay for? And then we're going to take that money and we're going to invest it back into building more tools. And it's not necessarily like they care about Bitcoin. It's really they care about themselves and it's creating a bigger market for Bitcoin overall. I think there are some exchanges that care about Bitcoin, but they just have like altcoin business, like they make money on altcoins and their own coin, like Binance, for example, with the BNB token. But I think Binance does care about Bitcoin. I think CZ is pro-Bitcoin and a net positive for Bitcoin. Well, they certainly should because like, if you look at their revenues, Bitcoin is a huge portion of it. Oh, yeah. They have a really nice like sustainable incentive to like not kill the golden goose. Yeah. But then there's some exchanges that are, I think at this point, a net negative for Bitcoin or at least neutral. And that's like Coinbase and stuff like that. Well, I think this kind of thing comes from incentives as well. Because if you're a business and you're looking for growth and you're looking at your existing you know, lines of products, and let's say you're an altcoin exchange, mm -hmm. well, you're incentivized to kind of see the world of money tokens be contentious because the more contentious it is, the more the market's going up and down like crazy, the more you're making in fees, the more you can sell to investors. That's a good point, Alex. And, and also another thing to add on to them is that 
Coinbase is funded by Andreessen Horowitz and a bunch of VCs, and those VCs also invested in a bunch of these altcoin ICOs, like Zcash's ICO and stuff. They don't call it an ICO, but it's an ICO, really. Like, come on. They, they pre-mine coins, and there's a tax, and all the tax coins goes to this, <laughs> this consortium, right? So it's a VCs back these projects, and it's kind of an incestuous circle that they need to make these values of these coins go up that they invested in. So they use Coinbase as a way to like attract people that are searching how to buy Bitcoin, right? They go and they Google, how do I buy Bitcoin? Coinbase comes up, they get Bitcoin on Coinbase, and then Coinbase says, hey, here's some other coins that are cheaper than Bitcoin. You should buy these. So they're incentivized to sell these altcoins and, and make them appear like a good investment opportunity or like reward you with tokens to learn how to use zero x like what pleb needs to learn how to use zero x it's just insane i think it's still good for bitcoin as long as we have like this core group of people who understand like here's why we value bitcoin and that we're not going to accept people like trying to walk all over us i think that it is good for bitcoin to have people involved who are not necessarily you know charity for bitcoin but they have found a way that they need bitcoin they need to use it even if they don't like how it is. Like I just saw that Coinbase implemented batching. Yeah, just yesterday. Right. But even if you didn't care about Bitcoin, the economics of how much you can save on batching require you to put in the effort of improving how you interact with Bitcoin. Right. I think that's a more sustainable model. Like especially as Bitcoin grows, we can't expect seven billion people to all be in love with Bitcoin, but it can deliver value to all those people. So for people who don't understand batching i expect nobody you know maybe like one percent of the people listening to this maybe understand what we're talking about with batching i'll try to explain it and how i figured out what it was like back in 2017 when the bitcoin price skyrocketed and the whole bubble in the cryptocurrency industry happened the fees went really high because there's a limited amount of space per block that you can put a transaction in and there was more demand for transactions than there was for than there was space in the blocks so that's like a capitalist sort of free market supply and demand problem. And the like result of that is that the fees go up because there's a small fee that gets paid to the miners, which is a decentralized network of people who are providing a value to the Bitcoin network by running the computers that basically process and secure the transactions. So the miners get paid from the users of Bitcoin. There's a small amount of space that's available for transactions to get in. And when there's a mass media sort of speculative bubble happening, everybody's using Bitcoin. And Coinbase was like not batching transactions for the longest time. And what that meant was you can be more efficient with the Bitcoin block space. You can treat the blocks like a public good. You can treat the blocks like a steward of this scarce human resource, especially if you're a business. Or you can just milk from it and leach value and do what Coinbase did, which was like not efficiently use your, your transactions and just kind of spam and inefficiently use it. So Coinbase didn't want to put in the engineering effort to batch transactions and help with uh, lowering fees and making it more efficient. They didn't want to add SegWit right away, which also helped with efficiency. So batching transactions, people were bugging Coinbase for two years, like a bunch of batch transactions. You can help the network. You'll be good stewards of the blockchain. And they just finally got around to it because I don't know why it took them two years, but at least they did it now, I guess, better late than never. Yeah. And I think like the strongest argument for implementing these things is just we'll save money or we'll make money. That's what happens when you go into one of these meetings and you say, like, what kind of thing should we work on? And if you say, oh, well, the fees are, are going to be zero forever, 
nobody's going to work on batching. Nobody's going to use that efficiency. Nobody's going to make their uh, transactions more efficient. But if you say, oh, well, look, we had $30 fees and this is a problem that could cost us you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Yeah, And even then it's still effort because the fees go back down and then there's reprioritization and they're like, well, we could, you know, this other company is paying us some money to integrate this other token or whatever. So let's do that first and then we'll we'll work on this other thing. For the last two years, the fees were pretty much minimal. They were like, I've, I've been sending Bitcoin transactions for like five cents. Like I just choose a custom fee and put one sat per byte and I just wait for it. And I haven't had any problems with stuck transactions since that one like one month period in 2000, late 2017 when things went crazy. Yeah, I think that's also partially attributed, can be attributed though to people who kind of got a kick in the pants using the chain efficiently because they had this prior history. And the, the thing about it is, is that if other people start using the chain efficiently, then you will realize the benefit because there'll be more space for your transactions to be un- not efficient up until a point. I kind of agree, but I also disagree because I don't think people, like average people, even know how to use it properly. And and if they're just using the base layer, I think they're just using the software and whatever the software suggests, like Bread Wallet will just basically give you the average fee to get the transaction through so they don't have customer service problems. So you'll overpay with consumer wallets, most of them. As a normal person, you're not thinking about using the block space efficiently. You're just thinking about, I'm using Bitcoin. Well, you're probably more sensitive than the exchanges because that's one thing that we face at BitGo is that we made more efficient ways to use the chain. And then when we would reach out to exchanges and we would say, look, save $100,000, they would actually say, we don't care because they're making so much money on the exchange fees. Their, Their business is doing great at those periods of time. It's actually the people who are using Bread Wallet who start to complain. They say, oh, well, you know, I'm very sensitive to this fee because I'm just buying a loaf of bread or something. And the fee is taking up a lot of my money. But on the exchange's side, they're doing hundreds of millions of dollars. If they're paying $5 in chain fees, they're not really caring. Yeah. And that's what I am disappointed by with a lot of the bigger companies that benefit from Bitcoin. These companies would be nowhere without Bitcoin. Bitcoin feeds these people and makes them rich and they just milk and leech off Bitcoin. So it frustrates me because if they want to be good stewards, which they should be, they should hire core developers or donate to developers, do batching. And like I was thinking, in order to get ready for the next wave of mass adoption, which is inevitably going to happen and fees are going to spike again because the block space is a scarce resource and we do have to be efficient with it. It has to be a top-down adoption of Lightning Network and second-layer scaling solutions. So we can't expect users to want to go out and proactively download non-custodial Lightning wallets. You know, we need exchanges to get their ass in gear and start using Lightning Network if that is a safe way forward. Like, why don't we see exchanges? Well, actually, it started to happen. Like, right, Bitfinex recently announced their... Yeah, Bitfinex. And there's also River, who's like a brokerage for Bitcoin. Why not like Binance or any of these big ones? Why aren't they using Lightning yet? Well, like, it's taken a while to do batching, to do SegWit. But that's something actually that I'm working on with Lightning Loop. So one thing that's interesting with Lightning Loop is that it actually allows you to realize the benefits of batching, potentially, even if you are not a big volume provider. So the thing about batching is like the way it like technically works. I gave the dummy explanation. You tell us how yeah. it really works so that I can parrot that next time I try to explain it and do it properly. <laughs> yeah. So like, why does batching save you money? It's not like SegWit where you get like a discount. Batching is just something that's been in there in Bitcoin forever. The reason it works is that a normal transaction, it has 
like four components. It has the component, which is you have, and these are data components, like the and data is what you pay for, you pay for the bytes. So it has two components, which are the coins that you're actually spending. So you have to reference the past coins that you spent. You're going to spend two of these coins. And then you go and you say, okay, where am I going to send my money? And so you attach an output and you have to specify like who's getting that money and how much money are they getting? And then Bitcoin doesn't allow you to spend parts of a coin. So you have to attach another output, which is money going back to yourself, a change output. These four different components, whenever you want to do a send on Bitcoin, on the blockchain. So how does batching change that? With batching, you take that one output that you wanted to send. So only one of those four pieces was actually something that you cared about, which is sending money to the person who's going to get it. And with batching, an exchange has tons of people who want to receive money, who are doing withdrawals. So maybe they have 100 people. So what they do is instead of making 100 transactions, each with two coins being spent and each with one change output, they just make one transaction and it still has maybe one or two inputs and it still only has one change address, but it has 100 withdrawal requests in there. And so you get so much more efficiency by not making like 100 transactions because you only make that one transaction that still has the components of a transaction, but it has saved you making a lot of new transactions, a lot of new inputs, a lot of new outputs. And there's even overhead with inputs and outputs where you have to kind of shuffle around coins to make sure you have enough of them. You have to rebridge them together to consolidate them. So Lightning Loop is actually a way to get batching even if you don't have volume. Let's just back it up a sec there try to put it in simpler to understand terms. So can you think about the technical way that a Bitcoin transaction works? Can you think about it like it's an abacus and there's blocks that are worth a certain amount, like there's little balls or whatever that are worth a certain amount because that's your unspent transaction, right? Unspent transaction output. And like as they slide around, they go from inputs to outputs. But it's kind of like in order to send one Bitcoin, you may be sending two Bitcoins and getting one back. Yeah, yeah. You don't have an abacus ball that says one Bitcoin. You have an abacus ball that says two Bitcoins. And you have to send that and you get back one from the other person. You have these things like called UTXOs, unspent transaction outputs. So you're referencing the past times that you got money and you can't split that up. So you can't spend part of it. You have to spend all of it. And then if you don't want to send all of it, you have to send part of it back to yourself. To a change address. To a change output. Yeah, to a change address. So... If you have this abacus that's filled with $2 balls, basically, and you only want to send $1, you actually send the full two and then you get one back. Right. It's like if you went to the store, like let's say you got paid $100 like at your work, and then you wanted to go buy a stick of gum. You only have this $100 bill. So you give it to the person who's selling gum, and then they give you 99 back, except we're in a non-custodial system. So you split it yourself. So you split it into $1 to him and 99 to yourself. Exactly. You got a little change purse on your on your side there and you're giving yourself the change back. Right, right. But so in the situation where you're going to buy a whole cartload of groceries, it's more efficient to batch the purchases into one stream of items to buy at once and efficiently use the bills and the coins that you have in your wallet if you're buying groceries rather than going to the cash register 50 times to buy each item and pay a fee every time, you want to batch it all together. So these exchanges, because there's a limited amount of block space, every time they buy something one-on-one, on one, like one by one, it's a really inefficient use of of block space. And it costs more money for the users. It costs more money for everybody because it drives up demand for 
the block space to a level where it's too expensive. We could be smarter with this. So batching is just a way that they have to just spend a bit more time to put the transaction in more efficiently. So like you said, if they have 100 people wanting to withdraw money from the exchange, rather than sending 100 individual transactions, they take the abacus and they slide it all together so that it's just there, it all works, and they send it all with one fee, right? That's right. Yeah, it's so much more efficient. It's hard to even put it into words. Okay, so that's how the transaction batching works. And it makes most amount of sense for the exchanges to do it because they're one of the most uh, most largest users of the block space because they have people depositing and withdrawing and, and all that. What are some other examples of businesses and stuff that use Bitcoin where they could be more efficient with their transactions? Well, if people did use Lightning, of course, that converts many, many transactions into one channel transaction. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to aggregate there. But is there any base layer ones, like any base layer of things you can think of? Like you said, BitGo was not interested. Like what would BitGo be doing? BitGo was interested in saving people money. The part that they were interested in is they were trying to get people onto SegWit. And SegWit is also a very simple way to save money because it has this discount system. The people who were not interested are the people who were paying the fees because exchanges were making so much money that they didn't really care so much. And SegWit would really allow you to kind of save maybe two times or a bit less on your fees. Right. In the future, we can potentially have some more savings if we get Schnorr and Taproot, especially if you're doing multi-seg. That sounds like the name that you had before they gave you a new one. Alex Schnorr. Yeah. <laughs> Schnorr. Yeah. Well, it is somebody's name. It's the guy who came up with it. It's controversial. You like uh, we, there was some debate whether it should be called that. Oh, Schnorr, yeah, and because he he had like patented it or something, right? Exactly. Yeah, it was a really good compression algorithm, I guess. And is it a compression algorithm? It'll be a different way to sign our transactions. So we use the signing ACDSA, and that's kind of like a hacky version of his algorithm. It would be better if we use his algorithm, which wasn't in common use when Satoshi was around because of this pre-existing patent thing that is no longer present. So is that a cryptography thing or is that a compression thing? It's cryptography, yeah. So it's just a more efficient cryptography or like a more private cryptography or how do you describe it? It's somewhat more efficient, but you know, fundamentally it's not that much different. It's just kind of like easier to work with. And the big feature that we're going to get as far as like compression goes is that it can do multiple signatures in one signature to an unlimited degree. So even if you have 100 signatures all together, they can be compressed into one signature. That's a huge savings on, on the blockchain. So this is like batching to another factor. It's batching and it's also more private because you can't see who exactly is signing. Normally, when you do multiple signatures in the regular blockchain right now with the ECDSA signatures, every time multiple people sign, you have to represent all of their different pub keys. So you know who they are, and then you have to represent all these different signatures so you know who exactly signed. And that's a lot of overhead. All of that data has to be broadcast to everybody and live on everybody's disks forever and stuff. This way, you have one signature that covers all the different people together. And we're going to see that like roll out potentially in different stages. The first stage would just be like if you're doing a multi-sig transaction. So like every time you make a lightning channel, you have two parties and both of them sign. And this would give you a way to get to use half the number of bytes because instead of having these two signatures, you just have one signature. Okay, so to kind of break that down, I guess, for someone who's listening that may not be technically inclined to understand what that meant, like, I guess, to explain why this all matters, the number one property about Bitcoin is its uh, censorship resistance and decentralized network, really. And the blockchain needs to be validated by a full node in order to know that the transactions are real. 
Otherwise, you're trusting someone else to tell you that your transactions are real. And then that's just like the regular money system, or it's, or it's not just like the regular money system, but it's not as decentralized. Those people could be lying to you. And, you know, given the bank's history and everything, do you really want to be trusting your financial sovereignty to third parties? No, <laughs> that's the answer. No. So in order to keep Bitcoin decentralized, even though the block space is small, we need sort of the blockchain itself to not grow so big that you need this corporate budget to run a node to validate transactions. And if there's too much um, bandwidth required per block to validate it, if there's too much disk space required to validate it, if your computer needs a terabyte of RAM, like the Ethereum blockchain, to validate these transactions, it prices out the average person from being able to afford the hardware and the internet connection and all that stuff to be able to actually run a full node and keep it decentralized. Because the bigger the block space is, the more people are going to fit stuff in it. That's the easy way out. It's just, let's make the blocks bigger. That's what the big argument was between 2017 that culminated in the split between the big block people went the BCH way. So they just kind of like chose the easy way of just increasing the block size. And that actually has made it so that their blockchain is getting way bigger. So now it's like pushing out consumer hardware and you kind of need to be either not caring about decentralization anymore, or you need to be a big company or at least a wealthy person to own hardware that can validate the blockchain. So the basic, like most fundamental property of Bitcoin is to keep things decentralized, keep it so that we can all run a node because then we have influence. As long as we have the ability to run a node, we can vote, we can matter. But if we don't have the ability to run a full node for cheap, then we're going to be uh, have our transactions censored or just not have a vote anymore. And then it will be the miners and the businesses that will be in control of Bitcoin. So this big fight is a fundamental like activism of Bitcoiners like, like us that want to keep it small and decentralized. So all these new things that Alex is talking about, like the second layers, SegWit, transaction batching, Schnorr and Taproot, these are all like innovations in computer science and cryptography and stuff that shrink the transaction capacity, I guess, and, and allow us to scale while keeping the block space small, which keeps the decentralization of Bitcoin. I mean, does that kind of make sense like for an average person to understand why we're doing this complicated stuff versus just increasing the block size? Well, I mean, there's just so much wrong with increasing the block size that, I mean, that's part of it. It doesn't even work even if you didn't care about all that stuff. And the most important thing is like the reason why Bitcoin is even interesting versus fiat is that it is scarce. So if you can't figure out if it even is scarce or not, it's like accepting gold bars from somebody without having a way to check if the gold bar is real or not. You know, it's just like says gold bar written on there. How do you know? You just say, oh, well, I'm going to trust you. It becomes useless. You can't trade it around anymore. It's no longer gold. It's it's just paper money, which that already exists. Yeah, that's a great example. It's like digital gold. Bitcoin is kind of presented as a digital gold and real gold. Like you're just trusting the bank and you're just trusting your counterparty that if you have real gold, that it's actual gold. In order to get like a uh, spectrometer or an assay machine or whatever to actually figure out if that's actually gold, it's going to cost you quite a bit of money. But Bitcoin, because of the way it's it's just got computer programming and whatnot, whatever, it's just you just know if you have a full node that that's real Bitcoin. If you don't have a full node, you don't know if it's real Bitcoin. That's the difference, though, between Bitcoin and just some database where people are passing around money. Like that could still be useful. It's just like if you're in a game and you're figuring out like who has the game money. Well, you just ask the database, you ask the person who's in charge of the money, 
And that's like still usable, but it's not what Bitcoin is about. It's, and it's not a good basis for like a world currency because what if that person decides, oh, I, you know, I'm going to shut down the game. I'm going to change the rules. I'm going to print new money. So that's what kind of makes Bitcoin special. Yeah. And like the reason why I'm resentful or whatever, distrusting of these exchanges, like mostly Coinbase and those types of exchanges is just because they've been poor stewards of, of the blockchain. They've benefited so much from Bitcoin, but yet they've been the last to implement SegWit and batching, and they're probably going to be the last to integrate Lightning Network. They're going to be the last to do all this stuff because it comes down to the CEOs of companies like that are like egotists in a way. And like they wanted Bitcoin to scale a different way. They wanted Bitcoin to scale with bigger blocks because it helped their business. They didn't have to do any computer engineering or they didn't have to spend any DevOps costs or anything like that. If we had just increased the block size, it would have been better for them. It would have been easier for them. So they were really hard against doing it this way. And because the users had the vote and the users through the UASF and the No2X movement basically threatened, like it was like the Boston Tea Party, basically. It was just like, listen, we're not going to stand for this. Miners and businesses are not in control of Bitcoin. And we're just going to burn this whole thing down. If you decide to take over Bitcoin, we're not going with you. So businesses got really most businesses anyway that were signing the New York agreement, they were just upset. And now it's come to this where it's still two years later and blockchain.info is one of the biggest users of the block space, Coinbase still, et cetera. And they're just like almost feel anti-Bitcoin. They almost feel like they've, they're still milking Bitcoin, but they're just so slow to implement changes that will help Bitcoin. So I'm so happy to see exchanges like Jack's Cash Cash App and things like that, and things like Lightning Labs. Like I'm, I have a lot of uh, fear about why do we have these big companies in control of all the users when they're anti-Bitcoin. But then I'm very uh, happy to see exchanges and and companies like Lightning Labs that are like carrying the baton, and they're so obviously pro-Bitcoin, and they're doing all these amazing things that it gives me hope. Yeah, I think it's understandable that exchanges are really focused on their bottom line. We have the tool, which is the fees to say that even if you don't care, you still have to do it. And I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And if you're a smart business, I think you're thinking ahead. You're thinking what's going to happen in a year, what's going to happen in two years. And I do think exchanges are looking at Lightning in that light, that they are saying, well, we're going to need more, more ways to safeguard against a future where fees are very high. And we're also going to need to make our product better because other people are going to have like these instant trades and we're going to have slow trades that have to confirm on the blockchain. Other people are going to have more private trades. And we're going to have very public trades that have to you know, be advertised to everybody on the blockchain. I think it's just like, you know, it's a matter of time. So if you're pro-privacy, you want to use Lightning. I guess like you're saying, if you're looking at this from like a capitalist perspective or a free market perspective, it's better for you to use Lightning because you'll be more competitive with your exchanges Part, uh, exchange competitors, you'll be able to say, we offer Lightning, it's instant, it's more private. So that's a good way to focus on, yeah, like uh, presenting it in a way that these businesses will understand, listen, this is going to help you. This is going to set you apart. You're going to get left behind. Bitfinex is already doing it. Square Crypto is like developing the Lightning SDK, the LDK. So get on board. And so do you think this is going to work? Do you think like the lightning loop thing that you guys are working on and like the LDK that Square Crypto is working on, do you think that's going to be the impetus that helps bring us to the top down thing where the exchanges start doing it and we don't, we're not relying on the activist users to do it? I would say at this stage, it's more like an investment in the future. So it's kind of like 
you know, when I first started using Bitcoin, the exchange was Mt. Gox. And other exchanges like kind of saw how crazy Mt. was. Well, they're not following proper protocols of do, using cold wallet and their, their trading engine is crazy and everything is crazy. And why didn't Mt. change what they were doing? Everybody was telling them like, look, in the future, this is going to come and bite you in the butt. Your trading engine is going to blow up. Your funds are going to get stolen. Everybody knows that that's going to happen. But Mt. Gox was just making so much money and worrying about putting out like fires at the moment that it didn't matter for them in the short term. In the long term, it did all blow up and their competitors did all outlast them. So I would say that that's kind of like where we're at right now with uh, using the chain more efficiently, upgrading the technology around sending Bitcoin to you know modern technology is if you build it now, then once things really do start to need those technologies, once that like starts to bear fruit, then you'll be in a good position and your competitors will not be. So right now, it's like there's not many people using Lightning Network in terms of other blockchains and Bitcoin. It's not like an obvious need for an exchange right now to say, oh, I have to integrate Lightning Network because everybody's asking me for Lightning Network and everybody's using it. But this is more like get ahead of the curve type of thing. Like, Well, plus the concept of a network, it depends on the, the size of the network in terms of its utility. Like if you have a network of two people, that's not a network really. That's you know just a protocol between two people. But once you have lots of people starting to join the network, once you can send to arbitrary points, and the more and more points that you can send to, then the higher and higher utility you get out of this network. And it doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen like at the start. You don't have a lot of utility. Like if only 10 people had telephones, why would you get a telephone? You can't really call anybody. But once the telephones become more ubiquitous, once you can give anybody a call, then it's really time that you must have a telephone. Otherwise, you can't even talk to people. Yeah, that makes sense. And that makes uh, makes me a little bit more understanding of why Jack would build Strike to uh, not use Bitcoin, because it's it's just another thing that's just a benefit for Bitcoin, because more people are going to be using Bitcoin. It's a better UX. People are already thinking in dollars. Let's just slowly hook them on Bitcoin. <laughs> I'll slowly get them to use Bitcoin. Yeah. And Lightning, it's not a new token, right? It's not a new coin at all. What it is, it's a bridging technology. It's a way for other people to connect with each other more efficiently. And it's even a way like to connect with people who are not using Bitcoin more efficiently because every trade is a trade from Bitcoin to something else. So if you want to make Bitcoin more efficient, you have to make other things more efficient. You have to make fiat more efficient. You have to make the other coins more efficient because they're integral in every trade. Every Bitcoin and fiat buy is also a fiat transaction as well as a Bitcoin transaction. During the 2017 altcoin bubble, I mean, you look at the way Ethereum decides to do these scaling solutions, what they do is they raise money with a new token, like a plasma coin or a Casper lab coin or whatever. So they, they have these scaling solutions that they want to use for their blockchain, but then they'll do a raise and have another coin. So now they've got all these like coins that are meant to be, it's just bananas. It's just a greed and speculation like rampant. Yeah, that's why it doesn't work. Because like for a network to really work, you need people to adopt it. You need It needs to be a big tent for everybody to join in. And the bigger the tent is, the more about, more utility you get out of the network. So as soon as you like say, oh, there's this cover charge, you have to buy some of our tokens. The reason they made these tokens is just to fund themselves. So if Lightning had this like token by itself, I think it would just be self-sabotaging and it might not even work. Oh, yeah. It's a huge barrier. Bad UX. Wait, I want to use Bitcoin, but I need to buy Lightning coin? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So it's great to see that Bitcoin has taken that route and the Bitcoin companies building on Bitcoin have taken that route to use Bitcoin as the coin and not like this is almost like the way to think that I've been starting to think about it lately is like lightning is not a, a separate layer. Lightning is Bitcoin. It is Bitcoin. It's just advancement in Bitcoin technology to allow scaling to happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, it's just a more advanced wallet. 
there's no new token. There's no new chain. There's no new consensus. It's just a way to work with other people to achieve your objectives of sending money around. So there is a different risk profile for the Bitcoins that are on Lightning than the Bitcoins that are on chain or in a wallet on chain. And that's true. And I mean, it's worth telling people about that, I feel. So Bitcoin has had 10 years of of usage and it's safer to use Bitcoin than it is to use Lightning at the moment. I feel that's kind of true. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like the blockchain, like we've had 10 years to figure out like how to use this properly. And that's one reason that I worked, you know, I worked on submarine swaps originally is I thought, well, we can't just abandon all of this great stuff that we have with the blockchain that you can send to anybody. You don't have to worry about channels. You don't have to like have counterparty risk like with your peer. So why can't we have the best of both worlds? And that's what I think people are using Lightning Loop for right now. And the same thing also, Lightning Loop kind of gives you the ability to do batching, even if you're just a single person. So if you're a single person, you don't have the volume of Coinbase. You're not doing 100 withdrawals. But what you can do is you can pay us in Lightning, pay the Lightning Labs in, Light- in Lightning, and then we will attach you to one of our batches. And that way you'll get the efficiency of batching, but you will you will still be able to be your own individual and not have to go and make a lot of spends. Okay, so yeah, Lightning Loop, I don't know what that is really. Let's talk about that because we, we kind of got sidetracked. You were about to tell me about it before, but then I was thinking about the business use case of batching. But now we're talking about a more efficient way to use Bitcoin as an individual with Lightning Loop. So let's say I'm a on-chain user. I'm I'm using Bread Wallet or something like that. You know, I'm just a normal person. I want to save fees. Well, how does Lightning Loop help me? Yeah. So even if you didn't care about Lightning at all, like you just wanted to make on-chain spends, Lightning Loop gives you an alternative to a normal wallet construction. So the normal wallet you would have, like let's say you had Bread Wallet, as you would receive money, you would get more and more UTXOs. So let's say you receive money over a few years, and now you have 100 of these UTXOs. People just don't even understand UTXOs. Like, <laughs> the, yeah, when yeah. they look at their Bitcoin wallet, they see, oh, I got a half a Bitcoin. But that's actually 100 UTXOs in the, in the back there. It's actually 100 of these abacus balls that have been moved over to your side. And yeah. you've got like a one cent ball and like a five cent ball and a 7.2 cent ball. You got all these like UTXOs that make up your 0.5 Bitcoin. Right. So people don't understand that because that's all been hidden behind the scenes of the wallets. You'll only start to see it when you go to spend. And that's kind of like the, the reason why people don't act too proactively about this. Is that, and that's a problem that we had at BitCo. People would, would get all of these coins together and they would get like a one cent coin and a one cent coin and a one cent coin. And then they would go and try to spend a dollar. And what's going to happen is you're going to have to pay fees for all of those past receives. And that's part of why batching is going to be way more efficient is because you're going to be using a bigger coin, like a $100 bill, instead of having to push together all of your little change together and bring it in a bag to pay for what you're paying for. You just bring one big size input, one big $100 bill. Yeah, Loop offers these two concepts. One concept is that you can, instead of having all of this cost, you pay one cost on chain, which is you set up your your money into this channel. Into a lightning channel? Into a lightning channel, yeah. So you open up a lightning channel with lightning labs. It doesn't necessarily need to be with lightning labs, but it has to be with like connected to lightning labs like through the network. You put Bitcoin in the lightning network, basically just meaning you spend your Bitcoin to a time lock address right you join up your coins with somebody else who's like going to route for you a routing node and the routing node could be lightning labs itself or it could be but that's all behind the scenes right like people don't need to really know that they're doing that how do they do it right this would be a wallet that was kind of like a lightning loop wallet any type of lightning wallet would be able to do this and they can make it as like visible or invisible as they as they figure out a way to do it is there a wallet 
like right now for this? Well, so any lightning wallet can be used with, with lightning loop in theory. But is there one that is using it right now? Like, could I do it right now if I wanted to with the wallet? Do you guys have a wallet out? There's a service called RTL, which is kind of like an open source like dashboard for your node. Okay. So right now, I, I would say when we introduced Loop, it was just a, like an API. Okay. We've been starting with people who, who need this more as a service, not like consumer side using a very easy to use app. But certainly in the future, they can use that. And uh, RTL is a kind of like a user interface that would make it easy. So this isn't quite ready yet for the average person to use. For sure. Somebody may may build it into a wallet. We'll be working on easier ways. Like in the, uh, you know, after we made the API, we made like a command line interface. So if you're technical, you can download that and do a loop with the command line. And then in the future, of course, we can expand that and make it easier to use for more and more people. So the focus on a loop right now is uh, businesses and exchanges and stuff? Yeah, for sure. The security that you talked about, that's a big point too, because like, let's say I'm a, I'm a merchant, people are paying me more and more money. Well, that means that more and more money is stacking up in my hot wallet and in my lightning wallet. So I'm getting more and more money in my lightning wallet. And I'm a merchant, I don't really need that money in my lightning wallet. I need it maybe in my cold wallet, or I need it on the exchange. I don't need it in my lightning wallet. So what Loop allows you to do is it allows you to push it back. So Loop is a service to trade off-chain funds for on-chain funds. So you can go from the blockchain to the Lightning Network or from the Lightning Network to the blockchain. That's what we offer to these merchants and we offer to exchanges. We say, you're getting unbalanced amounts of like, and that's also like the abacus. You know, people are pushing all of their little beads on the abacus over towards a merchant as they buy stuff. And if we want to reuse those channels, if we want to like keep using the same channels without making a new on-chain transaction to like close the channels, reopen them, we're going to have to uh, push the beads back over to the other side. And that's something that Loop allows you to do because it does a non-custodial swap. Okay. It says, you pay us off-chain and we'll pay you back on-chain and we'll do it in an atomic way where, you know, we can't take your money. And so you can just kind of build that into your service so that you can just do regular business with people. And it doesn't matter that you're constantly getting, you know, a bigger and bigger wallet because you're also constantly drawing it back down. And we're doing it in an efficient way. So to bring it back to our conversation about like being a good steward with the block space and using batching and things like that and how most people just don't think about that, but that's what's required to scale Bitcoin. The common argument against Lightning working long term is that if everybody was using Lightning, like everybody uses a bank account, then it wouldn't scale on chain because every time you open and close a transaction, it's an on-chain transaction. And there's not enough block space to be able to serve the whole world to have transactions to open and close channels. Because you'd quickly fill up the block space, not even with sending Bitcoin around, but just opening and closing channels on Lightning Network if we got to like a billion people using Bitcoin. That's the common argument that I hear a lot from detractors like big blockers and stuff that are trying to push another altcoin saying like, oh, Lightning Network's not going to work. Bitcoin can't scale. But then the actual innovators and the scientists and the computer scientists and stuff are developing things like Loop because it's to me that shows that we're aware of that problem. And you guys are trying to provide proactively a service that allows people to get on and off Lightning efficiently. Yeah. And there's also the profit motive, which is that there's going to be fees there. So once there's a lot of people making a lot of channels, the outcome of that will be that the space costs more. And so if we offer a service that allows you to save space, Mm. to save on fees. If it was $100 a transaction right now, which it probably will get to at some point in the future, if Bitcoin's a million dollars per Bitcoin, we're going to be seeing $100 per transaction for sure. That's going to be a no brainer. So at that point in 10 years, 2030, 
Bitcoin's a million dollars. We're pricing things in sats instead of Bitcoins. And everybody's using Lightning Network to use the regular transactions. And it's like rare to spend on the on the chain. Let's say that is a world that we're in. We have Taproot, Schnorr. We have all these efficiencies. People are doing all these things now, just like the internet scaled. Like There's so much complexity behind how the internet works from you to click on watch something on Netflix to you to get that, consume it, streaming it live. Let's say we're at a point where people are doing innovative things. The compression technology is all in there and everything. Do you still think that with a billion, two billion people using Bitcoin through second layers like Lightning and stuff, do you still think that it's possible to have it work efficiently with just uh, the block space that we have now? Or do you think there will eventually be a need to put it up, like double the size of the blocks or something, if it's in consensus, not if it's a contentious thing? Well, I think it's just a matter of cost. It will always work. It's just a matter of like who is priced in. And I you know, personally feel like I would like to see everybody priced in and if it's technically feasible and we can maintain the system. Because it doesn't make sense to just blow it up to save it, right? We have to like do it in a way where we're maintaining the same principles. We, we offer the same service, but just to more people. I do think that um, we have also two tools to adjust the block size. And one we've already used, which is a SegWit tool. So with a soft fork, we were able to increase the size of the blocks by up to two, maybe even four if you're crazy. And we see that right now. Like if you go and look on the, on the block explorers, you'll see blocks that are bigger than one megabyte. So we have that way to do it in a way that's backwards compatible. And I think that there's actually more savings to be had there, even if you do it in a way that, that doesn't break consensus or it, you know, it changes consensus through a soft fork. It's not a backwards incompatible change. You know, I've run the numbers. So one thing for loop is I thought, okay, how much more efficient can loop be if we do all this batching? And just for the regular person, not for an exchange. And Loop can be much more efficient for an exchange than just for a regular person. But for a regular person, we want them to keep their channels open for a long time. We want them to minimize the number of on-chain transactions they're doing if we want to save them money. And so I would say it's like just a Loop service by itself, as we're creating it, I think it can be five times more efficient than a regular chain transaction. That's like if you go to a restaurant and you like are like, should I get a $10 burger or should I get a $50 steak? Well, you know, the stake would still be available, but you would have this loop service that would say, well, if you use the chain efficiently, you can get a much lower price. There's that way we can make things more efficient by just using it more efficiently. And I think there's big multiples there, the five times multiple. And if you're doing more transactions, we can do this thing called multipath payments, where we actually bring together lots of different lightning payments together. So like, let's say you wanted to close 10 channels because they're all saturated. Normally, like if you're just this person who's looking at the, the way things work right now and just extrapolating it out for the future, you would say, oh, this is going to require 10 transactions. Or if it's 100 channels, it's going to require 100 transactions. But with Lightning Loop, what we can do is we can say, let's aggregate all of those transactions actually off the chain. And so let's use multiple paths. So we'll spend out all of those different channels and we can actually aggregate them into one on-chain transaction. So that can be 10, 100 times uh, aggregation benefit for people who are doing a lot of traffic. How can you do that? The way it works is it's actually already present in the Lightning Network today. Although LND will not support like this sending until the next major version, but other implementations already have this and LND can receive multiple paths. And the way it works is like whenever you're receiving a Lightning payment, you've generated like a secret and you have this money going towards you that says, if you reveal the secret, then um, you can take the money. So in a normal payment, you see a payment that comes in for like $1 and you're expecting $1. So when you see the payment coming in for $1, you reveal the secret and you take the $1. The way that a multipath payment works is you receive the payment for 50 cents and you say, wait a minute, that's not enough money. So I'm not going to reveal the secret right now. 
And then you see another payment come in. So, and the payments are represented by these virtualized outputs, something that could go on the chain. We're just not keep putting it on the chain in theory. Where are they? So these are signed transactions that we could broadcast to the chain if we wanted to. We're going to try to avoid that by cooperating with each other. So the money is kind of like as good as you have it, but you don't actually represent it on the blockchain. So you save on that, that money and you save on that expense and time. So like, let's say you're trying to get $1, you get 50 cents at first, and then you see another 50 cents come in. So then you reveal a secret. You say, well, I'm going to take both of those because 50 cents plus 50 cents equals $1. Okay, so in that scenario, then you had two channels, which each had 50 cents. You accept them both in one transaction on chain? Exactly, exactly. So you batch those two original transactions to close it with one transaction. Exactly. So it was two transactions originally that opened the channels, like whenever ago, a year ago, yesterday, whatever. But then when you close the payment, you're being more efficient because you you closed it with a batched transaction of two channel closes. That channel still remains open. So you don't even have to close the channel. Oh, so it's not closed. It's just... You- You've moved the balance over to the other side. So you can reuse it. Oh, so that happens on Lightning. That doesn't happen on Chain? That happens on Lightning. Yeah, exactly. So you have these two Lightning payments that come in or many Lightning payments that come in. And then we actually send you back on Chain. So actually, the way the loop works is that you are responsible for creating the secret. So you send us these these Lightning payments, many Lightning payments, and they're all locked to the secret. And we don't even know the secret. We can't take that money. It's just locked to us, but it's locked to us with a secret we don't know. And it's locked to a hash, a hash of the secret. So we send it back to you and with the same hash. So you have this money that's coming back to you and it's all on one on-chain transaction. And then you do the math yourself. You're like, wait a minute. Okay, so I sent out five $1. I see on-chain one transaction coming back to me that's $5. And I could take that if I reveal the secret. But I know that if I reveal a secret that the Lightning Loop server can see that secret and then they can take those $5 that I sent off the chain in Lightning transactions. And so that's how we do the atomic trade. And that's how we, we turn five off-chain transactions into one on-chain transaction. I got to admit, I'm lost on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need some diagrams. Oh, man. So loop, like in terms of multi-path payments, because I, I had read a little bit about that and it was sounded exciting. It sounded maybe like it was a solution for the thing that all these, you know, lightning flutters always say, oh, it'll never scale because too many transactions to open and close channels. Multi-path payments... So that sounded like it was a way to batch channels together or somehow use the liquidity from multiple channels for one transaction rather than needing new channels all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm describing. I'm just not following the technical side, but uh-huh. I guess conceptually it works. <laughs> I know I know Bitcoin is don't trust verify. I can't really verify because I don't understand it, but like I'm so trusting you know developers. There's how many developers are working on Lightning right now? It's gotta be thousands. In terms of lightning apps. Oh, and the apps? I'm not sure. It's not a huge number. Not the lightning like protocols, but like people just building stuff. I got I see like conferences now and lots of activity on GitHub, like regarding Lightning Network apps and, and people that are seemingly building lots of stuff. Like it's starting to it feels like it's starting to catch up to Ethereum app developers, but not quite to that level. I think a lot of the people who are developing are kind of like coming from that world because those kind of like economies of just print a bunch of tokens and then make your money by printing money. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like not working anymore or it's slowing down and, you know, they're interested in, you know, new uh, opportunities. I see a lot of people like moving away from that kind of model. Lightning provided a place for those young 
developers that aren't like anarchists or libertarians or whatever. They're just like interested in coding stuff. Yeah. And Ethereum got there first and the ICO bubble sort of like exacerbated that. And, you know, Ethereum's developer community is this like unicorns and friendliness and all that stuff, which attracted a lot of young people that weren't really thinking about this from the monetary perspective. They were thinking about it from like, I'm just going to build stuff. It made it seem like easier than it really was. Like once you can print money, you just feel like, oh, it doesn't even matter if I don't have users because I'm just printing money. Yeah. You know, that doesn't last forever. Well, that like as Ethereum started to become a bit more contentious, like the community and people started to argue about how to scale and whether Ethereum is money or not, like you started to see the same sort of things happening in in Bitcoin Twitter, happening in Ethereum Twitter, where they're arguing with each other and decide, like figuring out, wait a second, it's not all just rainbows and unicorns. But I was glad to, because I don't like to see Bitcoin get a bad rep from younger people who are thinking like, oh, I'm not welcome in Bitcoin. You know, people think that, like, oh, I'm not welcome to develop in Bitcoin. I mean, there's also a technological component here. People were building applications on a system that didn't scale. And if you're building an application on a system that doesn't scale, eventually you hit the wall and you say, oh, wait, my application that I thought was just going to be a fun application and people are going to only spend a penny on transaction fees or something. Now they have to spend $5 on transaction fees. Now, you know, they have to wait forever. It's, it's, I put in all this effort in building this app. And because the system, the platform can't scale, that means my app can't scale. Whereas if you build on Lightning, I think the appeal is people see it doesn't really matter how many users I get. More and more users I get, the only people who are involved in this transaction are a very small number of people who are involved in routing the transaction. And because there's only the small number of people, that makes it more scalable. I can add more users, add more users, and I never hit this wall. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I see that the Ethereum people have got some side chains and stuff for focusing on uh, adoption through second layers and side chains. But I'm just glad to see Bitcoin competing there in the developer space, the app developer space now, because it kind of made me feel a little bit anxious before about long term, like developers feeling like Ethereum was the place they had to go if they wanted to build apps with cryptocurrency or with blockchains. But now I'm, I'm glad to see a developer community really strongly developing around apps and like a, an inclusive sort of friendly, exciting developer community where there's like SDKs being developed and APIs and all that for game developers and everything. Because it was really starting to make me feel like, oh shit, maybe Bitcoin is going to lose the that use case to Ethereum. Maybe all the games are going to actually go on Ethereum instead of Bitcoin. But now it's great to see that it's coming back and there's we still got a lot to mindshare to to grab back from game developers and stuff because they're all still in that mode of like, oh, if you want to put a game asset on a blockchain, it has to be on OpenSea, on Ethereum and all this. But I think like whether or not Bitcoin even wins that use case, it's kind of irrelevant. Obviously, it's good if Bitcoin Lightning Network gets that use case, but it's not like it's not going to make or break Bitcoin as a value proposition. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, this is just kind of like extra wins. So we already are, are very focused on getting the win of let's make a new currency. And that's what's important. Not like, how many games do we have on Bitcoin? Yeah, do we have a currency that works for everybody in the world? But once we do have that, it provides a platform itself for people to say, I'm an indie game developer living in Bangladesh or something. And do I have access to the same financial market that everybody else in the world does? And I can I make a great game that then people in Norway can download and pay me for. If you have a currency that's u- ubiquitous, that allows you to be able to do that as long as it's scalable. Yeah. In terms of that, like talking about developers and like, you know, I- I'm in this other country and I'm trying to like build on Bitcoin Lightning and stuff. There was a huge focus of tooling 
around Ethereum in 2017. And that, I think, was one of the things that brought a lot of developers into Ethereum. They had all these conventions and all this stuff, developer-focused conventions and stuff, and they had all these tools built. So recently there was the LDK announced that Square Crypto is working on. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had a lot of funding in general. So they had a lot of marketing funding. They had a slick website. And that's kind of like the pattern of the ICO is that you raise a bunch of money in the beginning and then you're able to create this foundation or you're able to create big ad spends. You're able to like hire researchers. That kind of gives you this big head start. You're just printing money for yourself. Now you can pay for all these things. But with Bitcoin, we have to kind of be scrappier and more self-sufficient. There are companies who are funding kind of like independent work like Square and, you know, Blockstream, Lightning Labs, you know, we're, we're publishing open source software. But it's, you know, we're not drawing down this massive ICO fund. I think if you like put them like head to head at the start, you know, it's going to look like the other side is like way overpowering. But if we build sustainable businesses and if we have sustainable technology that like actually works and like that we have companies that actually are making money on this stuff, then, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you raised at the start, like down the road in a few years, unless you can continue to make new ICOs. And so meaning you can find new suckers who you can get money from them. The people who like kind of were going slow and steady, they're going to win that race. Yeah. And, and like the perfect example of that difference between the FOMONomics of the Ethereum companies and the fundamentals of the Bitcoin companies is the size of the raises and the size of the valuations at the same time. When Lightning Labs did the first raise, it was, I think it was like a two million valuation or something really small, like uh, maybe a million dollars raised on the, on the first round, a couple million, maybe five million valuation. And like similar projects on Ethereum were raising like $50 million with a $500 million valuation. It was just insane bubble FOMO mentality. But the Lightning Labs folks were down to earth with their valuations, not trying to raise as much money as they possibly could because they could have. They could have raised a shitload of money in that first round. And even in the second round that was just announced, they could have raised more money, but they're being conservative. They're going more from like a fundamentals perspective. I'm just glad to see that that's the pattern that Bitcoin companies are on versus the crypto companies and the Ethereum companies that are just totally using out of this world valuations and raising obscene amounts of money that they don't need and that they end up losing or wasting or holding until it goes to zero. Like I talked on the episode with Udi, Udi Wertheimer, about the DeFi episode where Status IM had raised something insane like a million or a hundred million dollars in their ICO. And then they just recently raised like another 500K or a a million to keep going. So somehow they lost a hundred million dollars in two years. Yeah, the market will figure this out. It's not as if they're just inventing money from nowhere. It's some people are parting with that money. And when they don't see returns, they're not going to come back for round two. So if you focus on actually being able to deliver on the amount that is being raised, then you can keep going back and then you can grow into becoming a sustainable business. So these companies like your company, Lightning Labs and like Square Crypto, like, can you tell me what you think the LDK that Square Crypto is working on is going to help with? And what's the point of that? I mean, I should probably interview them, but what do you think about it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think like the benefit of Lightning Protocol is that it's not owned by any one company, right? And I think that's what's attracting people to the platform. There's other ways that we could scale Bitcoin. We could do, you know, closed platforms. We could do custodial solutions. Those already exist. But the thing that really makes people interested in Lightning is that, you know, there's nobody who owns that. Like if I go and develop on it, I'm developing as an equal partner with everybody else on there. There's also like a big variety of developers, you know, who have different needs and have different ideas of how they can use Lightning. 
And that's something that I was thinking about for the wallets as well. Like, we don't know exactly what's going to work. We need developers to try different things, and we need users to experiment with different things. And that's just a process that takes time and like effort from these different people. LDK is using Matt Corallo's Rust Lightning project, which he's been working on a while. And the focus of that is to kind of make it so that you can, as an existing um, Bitcoin developer, you can kind of integrate Lightning like tightly into your existing applications. Or you can use Lightning in ways that are very custom to your particular use case. Lightning Labs, we produce LND, which is kind of like an all-in-one solution. It does everything. And there's some limitations there, meaning that because it's, you know, it just works right out of the box, you aren't able to make everything work exactly as you custom, as you exactly would want it to. Are they like similar things or? So theirs is more like a, a library that you would integrate and ours is more like a, an application that you would run. But are they providing similar um, tooling or whatever? They both interact with the Lightning protocol, although theirs is kind of like an, an earlier stage. Like we've been, you know, running on mainnet for a long time. And their system doesn't really have, you know, like public mainnet support. And, it, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to build in order to like make it usable. But in general, it's the same concept. It's, we're trying to talk the same protocol. So it's like an SDK versus an API. Is that kind of? Yeah. Yeah. It's an SDK that, um, you know, you can build deeply into your apps and you can make more like custom versions of what you want the Lightning wallets to look like. Kind of going back a little bit to what we, we had kind of discussed a little earlier about the coin, you know, Lightning doesn't have a coin. Lightning is an extension of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the fuel. It's the thing. Bitcoin, you're using Bitcoin on Lightning Network. You're not using Lightning coins. It's just, it's actual Bitcoin that's locked up in an on-chain transaction in a smart contract that you're then extending into a second layer that has more privacy and has more scalability. You're working with a peer. Like all Bitcoins that you ever have are locked into a smart contract. Yeah. This is kind of like a smart contract with an extension with a peer-to-peer extension. You join into a peer-to-peer network. Why do you think people like Paul Pui from Edge Wallet and those guys that are more big blocker side, why do you think they just are resistant to Lightning so much? I've heard them say in the past that Lightning was an altcoin and things like that. Do you think it's just more politics or do you think that they just are never going to integrate Lightning or it's just, they're just going to eventually become BCH companies or big block companies? Or do you think they're going to eventually be kind of like the market's going to show them that they need to, if they need to use it or not? I think they have a point that Lightning it works just so differently than the blockchain. If you want to use Lightning and you want to use the full extent of all the Lightning features, it's almost like its own ecosystem. You have to think about things in a different way than you would think about the blockchain. Of course, you still are using the same base asset. So it is still Bitcoin. It's also designed to be trust minimized. I think another thing that they can't really see as much is that you know we have all of these plans to extend Lightning into ways that kind of address its shortcomings or make it easier to use, but they just take time to develop. That's something that you know you kind of have to be patient and wait for, or you have to be involved yourself and commit development resources to it. You know, there's no like easy answer. If you know, I can't like press a button and make lightning like instantly easy and perfect. To be fair, too, like that was a year and a half, two years ago when he said that, and I don't know what his views are lately. I kind of stopped paying attention to him when he said that because I was like, "Come on, man, this is like not an altcoin. (laughs) It's not a different coin." And I got into an argument with him on Twitter about. That's also something that you know I thought about in terms of submarine swaps. So making lightning work well with the chain. I think it kind of gives you the ability to not totally leave the chain. That you can say, well, the chain is really good for some certain things. And, it, you know, we're, we haven't hit the super high fees yet. 
So why don't we like have a graceful transition where we have sometimes we're using on-chain transactions and sometimes we're using off-chain and, you know, let's let those two work together. What's the use case for submarine swap do you think uh, the average person would understand? You know, when I originally thought about the concept, I, I made like a demo server and a demo website called submarineswaps.org. And I thought the easiest way for somebody like average to get a handle on what it is, is you could go to submarineswaps.org and you could take any lightning invoice. So you could go to any lightning app and take the, the request for payment. And you could paste it in there and it would then give you an on-chain address. And this on-chain address would be one that you could send to using any on-chain wallet. You could send to it from an exchange. You can send to it from your Trezor. Oh, cool. What's going to happen is the submarine swap server is going to take that on-chain funds and then it's going to extend it into Lightning. And so the Lightning invoice will be paid as soon as you get a confirmation. And so you'll be able to pay for Lightning things without even having a Lightning wallet. You'll just use an on-chain wallet. That's like Strike, but Bitcoin. Exactly. And I think that's the whole kind of concept of the Lightning Network in general, is that you want to be bridging people. Like You want to be bridging different markets together. You want to be bridging different payment technologies together. Is there any wallets that have this integrated or anything that's easy to like just scan the QR code, like the Lightning invoice, and use your on-chain Bitcoin to pay it? Actually, what has become more popular is the reverse flow. So Breeze has this ability to do some read swaps like built into it. There's also Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N Wallet. They've been working on submarine swaps. I know that Async, like Eclair Wallet, they've been talking about doing something like submarine swaps, but I think they have custodial swaps right now. Okay. There's also like other swap providers. So it's not just Lightning Loop. And of course, I made submarine swaps on my own before I joined Lightning Labs. And so at Lightning Labs, we, we made a new version of the submarine swap service. It's not related to the old, like it's a rewrite in Go. And my version was written in Node.js. There's lots of different people using it in different ways. To me, the way I'm thinking about it is like this probably wouldn't be used in the future because it wouldn't be as efficient as like Lightning Loop or multi-point payments or something like that. Is it something you see would just get eventually not used if the block space gets too expensive? Transactions? Yeah, it really depends. Like, let's say you're making a large payment, like you're, you know, you're buying a car. And let's imagine the Lightning Network in the future is so big. You mean like you're buying a roll of toilet paper? Yeah, you're buying some like, very fancy, expensive, very rare to find toilet paper. Two ply. Yeah. Two ply is going to be the new. Uh... <laughs> I feel that right now. Yeah. So maybe you don't want to like maintain this Lightning wallet, but you 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 can take out your Trezor and you can make this one off purchase. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, it's definitely more limited in use case than some other potential use cases, but uh, I think it can still be useful. One final thing I wanted to talk about you, we've been going for a little while here. I got to go get something to eat soon, but I wanted to ask you because you had posted not just recently, but you've kind of been championing for the last little while, like providing liquidity and and uh, routing and stuff on Lightning Network and how you're kind of like an activist there where you're providing liquidity and, and you're trying to... Uh, what's your goal with that? Why are you doing that? Is it to make money or is it more of an activism thing? Like from my perspective, there isn't so much difference. Different people have different philosophies of how the routing network is going to work. My philosophy is if people cannot make revenue, if people cannot like make money by running the routing nodes, they won't run the routing nodes because there's an expense involved. You need it to be worth my while to actually run it. You know, of course, I'm, I'm doing a routing node to like learn and you know, also to help the Lightning Network. That's a big motivation for me. But I'm also trying to figure out like, can these routing nodes actually be profitable? Can they make money? And then once they do make money, I also want to set people's expectations properly. Like one thing problem I think we had with Bitcoin and especially with the big blocks is that people's expectations were that the on-chain transactions would forever be very, very cheap. And they had the wrong expectation when it came to you know the time that there was contention for the block space. So with Lightning, I'm hoping that we can start out a bit more knowledgeable with 
you know, there's a certain number of people who are going to be altruistic and, you know, they're going to be letting you use their nodes for free, but that's not necessarily going to scale to everybody. There's limited capacity, even in Lightning. And in order to use that capacity efficiently, we're going to have to pay fees for it. And of course, there's going to be a market process. So hopefully we're going to try to make the fees as low as possible, but there's going to be fees. And, and what fees are they going to be? We don't actually know. It's going to be up to the market to decide. So I want to kind of set those expectations right up front so um, that people are used to it as it grows and that we can keep pushing those fees down while recognizing that they're there. So is there any way for like an average Bitcoin user that has a little bit extra money that wants to get involved with that to make some spare money or is it more complicated? I think it is something that you would have to do as like an enthusiast right now. Casa did make that node. But the thing about it is, is that if you want to run a good routing node, it's kind of like a video game. So I wouldn't say like it takes work so much as it takes some effort. So you have to kind of figure out like where you want to place your capital. The problem is, it's not like a Bitcoin node where you just set up a Bitcoin node and then you're relaying other people's payments. That's what I did. I set up my Casa node. I threw like some Bitcoin on it and I was just like turned it on and, yeah. and was like, find me channels. Yeah. I clicked the button to find me channel and I just let it run for a year. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know if it sent any transactions or did anything. It probably because didn't now work. I can't even get the thing to start. It's like when they announced that they weren't using it anymore, I guess something happened to my node and I still got to figure out how to get my Bitcoin off of there. Yeah. So yeah, like I would there say is it, risk involved. It's not ready. That kind of thing where you just plug it in and, and, it, and it works, it's not ready. It maybe, maybe it never will be ready. It's something that you would like, if you really care about it and you want to really participate, you would have to devote some effort to like making your routing node efficient. Like, and that means like assigning capital to where it should be assigned. So you need to figure out like, am I making channels with, with people who just never use them? Because then I'm not helping anybody. Or am I making channels with people who are really using it? And then people who, who were using it, are they still using it? And like, could I assign them to people who need it now? That's kind of like the effort involved. And it's fun because you are make, you can make fees and parts of it can be automated. You can say like, look, I see this channel hasn't been used and let's try a new channel somewhere else. It's part of what we have to figure out. And that's also why I like running my own routing node. I just find it like very interesting of like, how can I be a good router? I wanted to do it more from the perspective of uh, I didn't want to make any money with it. I just wanted to provide free transactions to people. And I didn't care if it cost me money because I was thinking about it more like I'm supporting Bitcoin by doing this, but I just didn't put the effort into manage channels and stuff. But I have the desire and I know there's lots of us that were in the debate that were like feeling cognitive dissonance about the fees being so high and like, yeah, this sucks. The fees are high. Like I want to do whatever I can to put my money where my mouth is and show people that Bitcoin is for everybody. It's not just for people who can afford to pay a dollar of transaction. So I wanted to provide like a place on Lightning Network where anybody who wanted could use Lightning and I would I would pay the fees uh, and like just kind of do that. But I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And I mean, I still want to do it. So if anybody's listening or whatever that wants to do this, I, I'm totally down to being like the... Uh, safe harbor fees <laughs> on lightning network i don't know how much it'll cost me yeah well lightning loop also is a, is a service for this in terms of figuring out how to balance your channels because that's something that's like complicated to figure out and if you don't keep your channels balanced what you're actually doing is you're creating more errors for people so if you don't run a routing node properly other people don't know that so they hit to your node and then like the channels are not balanced properly so it errors and it just makes your payment worse but so one thing lightning loop allows you to do is to manipulate your balances and in a way where you don't really have to think about it too much. 
So you might be able to even get things cheaper if you're really smart about how to assign your liquidity. But Lightning Loop is kind of like an easy button where it's just like increase my inbound liquidity. And then now your channel is balanced. I think I got to use your app. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll just click the button. Yeah, I'll do yeah. it tomorrow. <laughs> well, well, I think that's something that we're focusing on is trying to think about how we can make this also. Like we have the API that makes it easy, but we don't have like the buttons. We don't have like user interface that makes it easy. Yeah. And, you know, that's just more things that we have to do. Yeah, we're still so early in this. And there's still more work we need to do on Loop to actually make it more efficient to deliver the multi-path payments. We don't have that yet. We need to uh, really use Fnor and Taproot. Those aren't software in yet. We need to adjust things for that. We need to uh, improve like the basic API. There's just like tons of work left to do. It's not like we have everything ready day one. Aside from Bitcoin, is there anything else that you're spend your time on? Like, do you got any cool hobbies or anything? One thing I I like doing is uh, cooking. Nice. I've been cooking a lot, well, especially now. I don't want to go to restaurants. Everything is you know Armageddon <laughs> out there. Are you doing uh, the Four Hour Chef or something like that? Tim Ferriss book? Uh, no, I have like this thing, the sous vide. Oh, yeah. It just makes it so easy to make meat because it, it's like computer controlled. So it, like it keeps it at the proper perfect temperature every time. It's just super easy. And then I just make a bunch of vegetables and stuff to go with it. Have you heard about the 4-Hour Chef book? I haven't heard about it. I heard of Tim Ferriss. Oh, my God. You got to go check out 4-Hour Chef. It's amazing. Okay, cool. You know his books, The Tools of Titans, 4-Hour Body, 4-Hour Workweek. They're, they're like really big books, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I met him one time. Well, he has this thing about how he has this method of learning. It's the 80-20 rule, right? Like he tries to learn as much as possible that will get him by without spending as much time to be a master. So he basically wrote a book, a cookbook that shows you and shows the average person his learning method by teaching you how to be a chef. So you get this big book and it's awesome. It's really good. And it teaches you how to be a chef and how to do sous vide and how to do all these different things. seemingly complex uh, meal things. <laughs> cool. I love the sous vide. It's so simple, actually. It Like the sous vide device, it costs less than $100. And it's so easy to use. You just drop it in and then... It's, oh, yeah. Well, the only downside is it takes time. You have to be like front running your meal prep because it's going to take an hour or so. Yeah, there's a recipe in the book where it's like the 12-hour eggs or something like that. And it's like you put eggs in the pouch, put it in the sous vide machine, and then like tomorrow morning you'll have your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to uh, like post uh, on yalls.org like some recipes, but they weren't so appreciated. I think people are mostly interested in Bitcoin, so I stopped posting that. I think, yeah, like this is going to be a more important skill as this coronavirus thing spreads and qu- people are quarantined. Like Giacomo Zucco and his wife are quarantined in Italy right now, and it's pretty rough in places where this thing outbreaks. It's not like it's going to be killing everybody, but it's going to disrupt people's lives. and learning how to cook is actually, this is the time to do it. So I bet you his four-hour chef book is going to start rocketing up the charts. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I win the routine already. Like, because before I used to go like to restaurants all the time. Since I switched over, like now I feel like I'm, I'm all set to like bunker down. Are you like a carnivore diet guy or? I have been trying that. Yeah. I've been trying that out. It's pretty smart. I normally would just like eat, you know, I'd eat like a more balanced than carnivore. I guess I'm not like eating, you know, raw liver or anything, but, um, I try to eat like meat and vegetables, that kind of thing. You do eat vegetables though. Yeah, yeah. I'm cheating on the carnivores. Yeah, so carnivore diet is like you can't have any vegetables. There's some yeah. kind of science behind it that says if you eat the vegetables, it like changes the hormones that are produced in your body or something. So you can't. So it sounds like you're more doing like a paleo or something or, or keto or something like that. Maybe something like that. Although, you know, 
on those diets, you kind of have to like follow certain rules and you have to like study how it works. And I, I don't really, I'm not strict in that way. I've been doing keto for a while. I've on and off it for a year and a half now. And it's the easiest one that I've ever done. I, 10 years ago, I was like super overweight and I was having trouble actually. My wife and I were having trouble getting pregnant. So I was like, I got to do something to change because whatever I'm doing is not working. And I went on a vacation to Hawaii, our honeymoon, and I felt fine. But then I got back and I started, you know, got the pictures back or whatever. And I was looking at them like, Jesus, I look like I'm like the walrus that just got beached on the, uh, from the wave throwing me on the beach rather than me in the wave having fun. And that was a bit of a shift in my mind. I was like, okay, I got to do something to change. So I did P90X okay, and lost like 40, 50 pounds of fat, gained like 20 pounds of muscle or 30 or something crazy. And then we got pregnant. Wow. So I don't know, it's anecdotal, but I never ate so much in my life than when I was doing P90X. It was nuts. My jaws would get sore having lunch. It was like vegetables, meat, fat, everything. I did a diet like maybe 10 years ago, which was called the hacker diet. The idea of that diet is that you are like very meticulous in your record keeping of like what you're exactly eating. And that way you can control, you can control your weight because it's just a mathematical formula. So I tried that for like six months or something. Even on that diet, it kind of led me to understand more about like nutrition. And then, you know, to think like, why is keto or why are these diets like easier to, to do? And why are they harder to do? You know, how does your body like actually convert the food that you eat into energy and like what do the curves look like if you eat fat it's a slower curve so you kind of feel full for longer that kind of thing but, you know i'm not following any rules right now but like that's like what i'm doing cooking that's what i'm thinking about yeah i gotta get back more into cooking because i like i've been on and off different diets i've tried different i'm trying to find the one that suits me the best i've tried so many different eating methods over the last 10 years and i'm on and off and on and off but keto was the one i stuck with the most because i find it's just there's not a lot of thinking involved. You don't even really need to check your levels if you don't, you know, once you get used to a certain pattern. But because I, I'm a, such a sweet tooth guy, I can't do like Tim Ferriss's for our body diet, like his uh, slow carb. I can't do Atkins. I can't, you know, there's all these different diets that require you to 100% cut out sugar. Oh, uh, yeah. It's very difficult in the US. Like if you're not cooking yeah. for yourself and you're, you know, going to any restaurant or just look going to get a coffee or, you know, bakery or anything. Like I had an easier time when I lived in China because you can kind of say I'm not ordering rice. Yeah. Uh, living in the U.S., it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. French fries and potatoes and noodles, like everything is uh, all these side dishes. It's hard to find good options. Yeah. And the economics are also there. Like it's just cheaper to buy a sandwich than it is to buy a steak. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The thing that gets me by keto is that I can have all the raspberries I want, all the blackberries I want. I can have 80, 90 percent dark chocolate. and whipped cream it's like there's only like one gram of sugar in like two tablespoons of whipped cream <laughs> so yeah so yeah. that keeps me going man because it's low sugar it can have like 20 grams of sugar a day on it but yeah this is the easiest one that i've ever been able to stick to i can see why there's like overlap between people interested in diet and bitcoin because there's like all this like weird information out there of like you know what you're supposed to eat like if you actually do research then you realize yeah you go down the rabbit hole right yeah you know, people don't think it's kind of like a religion, but, you know, you're just like kind of looking at what the science is, actually. I thought when I was gaining all the weight and I got overweight, like the most heaviest I was when I was 10 years ago and unhealthy, I didn't realize it. I, I thought I was eating well. I was like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go have some yogurt and some granola. Like, that's healthy for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's also like there's a government aspect, too, where, you know, the U.S. is like, you know, has this like food pyramid thing. 
that was like dictated by the agricultural business and more like the food pyramid scam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also there's a lot of subsidies that go into unhealthy food that are like holdovers from World War II or whatever. It's very interesting. Like if you think more about your diet and like how you're, you're pressured into eating the wrong thing, maybe. I don't know how we, we got onto like the food thing, but two really good books that helped me out understand how this stuff works was uh, Nutrient Timing and Better Than Steroids. Those were both maybe 10, 15 years old, probably more than that, actually. But they're really good, really good short books, too, easy to consume. And it'll really just frame your mind on if you're interested in uh, understanding how nutrients fuel your body and make a good meal plan for yourself and macro levels and whatever. When I was in university, actually, we did like experiments on ourselves where we would look at like eating different things and like what it would do to our glucose levels as part of like our biology class. And it was just interesting to figure out like, how is that actually affecting me? All right. Well, I think it's been a, a good chat with you. Thanks for coming on and talking to me about lightning. I, I, I'm still going to have some more questions as we go. I might PM you on Twitter here and there. Yeah, it's been great. And also definitely check out Lightning Loop. Like, you know, it is a command line. So there's some technical stuff involved, but, um, you know, something you can play around with or, or submarineswaps.org. You can just don't need any software or anything. You know, if you're curious about it, I would try it out. What's the best way for people to find you on uh, social media? Definitely on Twitter. I'm Alex Bosworth on Twitter. So uh, if you want to follow me, be happy to have more followers as long as you're not a, you know, bad guy. Or if you want to get some uh, sous vide roast beef, what do they send you? A, send you a, a lightning loop? <laughs> yeah, I would post something on y'all's because my Twitter is very disciplined in uh, Bitcoin topicality. So unless I figure out a way to relate sous vide and Bitcoin. All right. Well, I guess we'll end it there, guys. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And takeaways here is still early. Buy Bitcoin. and buy a sous vide machine yeah because you're gonna have to start learning how to cook when the (laughs) quarantines come rolling through (laughs) yeah it's great to talk to you all right man thanks slow down Go. Oh.